Hello all, Eric Rivenis here. So today's episode is about the horrific 1924 murder of Bobby Franks by Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Listener discretion is advised, by the way. So a long, long time ago, episode two, in fact, of this podcast, I did an interview about this case. It's, it's one, though, that absolutely deserves another visit, especially with a, a fresh perspective. And I'm very fortunate to have two authors on this episode who not only know the ins and outs of this case intimately, but their research has led to some interesting information regarding the very complex relationship between Leopold and Loeb. So back once more for another look at the murder of Bobby Franks. I'm so excited to have as my guests Penny Wilson and Greg King. They are a writing team who have written some really interesting books, including The Fate of the Romanovs, The Last Voyage of the Andrea Doria, The Sinking of the World's Most Glamorous Ship, and Lusitania, Triumph, Tragedy, and the End of the Edwardian Age. Last September, their newest book came out, called Nothing But the Night, Leopold and Loeb and the Truth Behind the Murder That Rocked 1920s America. Great to have you on today, and I'd say great to have you aboard, but you've written two books about sinking <laughs> ships. <laughs> yes. That might be bad luck. Well, thanks for having us. So Leopold and Loeb uh, and their murder of Bobby Franks, one of the most notorious true crime cases in American history, much has been written about it. What did you decide to do to make your book different from the others out there? Well, funnily enough, just as with the author you had on for the Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe episode, our editor at St. Martin's and us were throwing around some ideas what we wanted to do next and as usual, we had a we had a whole list of things, and uh, for one reason or another, the items on our list, you know, just just didn't come up to um, expectations. And then finally, right before we were ready to kind of table it and hang up and go on and think about other things for other subjects for a couple of days, Charlie uh, said, "Hey, what about Leopold and Loeb?" And we just said, well, sure, that because that's something that we had both been interested in. Yeah, we'd actually talked about it sort of before that, but we figured that we probably needed to hold off for a little bit because this was in 2017 and the 100th anniversary, of course, was coming up um, next year. So we didn't want to get you know too far ahead of ourselves, but... You know, St. Martin's was really interested in getting it out ahead of the anniversary. And so we thought, okay, well, let's, let's do it because we've got some firm ideas about it. So if you don't mind, let's start with the Kenwood neighborhood in Chicago, 1924, and uh, talk about the families that lived near each other, the Franks, the Loeb's. Yeah, well, Kenwood 
was and, and still is a fairly exclusive residential area um, in Southwest Chicago. It's where Barack Obama lived before he was elected president. Um, and his house actually it was only a block away from uh, the Loeb house and the Frank's house, um, ironically. So it's always sort of attracted wealthy people to the neighborhood. It was calm and quiet. Everyone felt secure there. And it, I think in 1924, there was a, a fairly large concentration of wealthy Jewish businessmen who had moved into the neighborhood because they were barred from, you know, really the other exclusive neighborhoods in Chicago. And so it was sort of a very wealthy not really a Jewish enclave, but there were a lot of Jewish families there, including the Loeb's and the Leopold's and the Franks, although the Franks had converted to Christian science uh, a few years before their son was kidnapped. But um, the families, they all were sort of protected, lived in insular worlds. Um, you know, their, their wealth shielded them from a lot of things. And, all of these, these three sons, Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold and Bobby Franks, they all sort of carried this air of, you know, they were respectable, but they were also, you know, the sons of privilege. And when the crime happened, it just went to show that, you know, you could take nothing for granted that being wealthy and, uh, you know, having the biggest house on the block meant nothing when it came to murder. Yeah, for sure. So your book begins on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924, the day of the abduction and murder of Bobby Franks. Would you tell us about Bobby, the kind of kid he was? Um, Bobby was the youngest of three children born to Mr. and Mrs. Franks. He had a brother, Jack, who was about a year older than he was, and his sister, Josephine, was two or three years older than that. I think she was about 16 uh, when this happened. And she actually lived quite a long life. I, I think she was alive yeah. until well into the 1990s, uh, if not a little later. Yeah, I think she died just before her 100th birthday, actually. Yeah. So Bobby was like many youngest children. He was the, you know, I don't want, you don't want to say the favorite, but he was certainly petted and spoiled. And um, he was a bright boy, very smart boy, small for his age, yet athletic still, loved baseball. He was also active in his school's debate society and had, um, in a bit of a bit of a sad coincidence, had been involved in a debate just a couple of weeks or even maybe a handful of days before uh, his murder, where he presented the very modern idea that those who were guilty of murder ought not be executed because obviously they had been suffering from some sort of mental, mental situation that caused them to commit crime. So I would say he was certainly forward-looking, open-minded. Um, some of his teachers found him to be a little bit arrogant, but I think that's not out of the norm for the 
petted youngest child of a wealthy family, very comfortable in his own wealthy enclave, in his own upper-class private school. I, I think Bobby Franks was very much the star of the show in his own family. And um, obviously his loss was just utterly devastating to you know both his parents and his brother, actually, who wrote uh, a book of poetry about it uh, a few years later. So, um, yeah, that's Bobby Franks. So Bobby leaves school that afternoon. It's a gorgeous late spring day. Neighborhood kids are thinking about baseball. It's a very jovial atmosphere. Well, it was, I think, the first fine day for a while. There had been some rain going on, which kept the kids cooped up inside. Uh, So as soon as school let out that day and it was a bright, sunny afternoon, I think a couple of the PE teachers or sports teachers arranged to stay behind. They brought out the bases, the bats and balls and gloves, and the kids broke up into two or three different games, one taking place in the playground at the school and the others taking place in open lots in the you know, the the immediate area. And Bobby had gone off with one of the groups of kids to one of the vacant lots where he actually didn't play that afternoon. He acted as umpire. So he umpired the game. And when it was gone, I uh, when it was over, sorry, I guess he gathered his, his things together and headed for home. And he was walking along the street and he was Uh, being trailed by a boy who knew him. I I don't think they were particularly friends. I think this boy was somewhat younger than Bobby and was just heading the same way at the same time after the games. And this kid saw Bobby ahead of him, recognized him, and he was briefly distracted by some botany homework. A teacher had asked them to look at particular kind of plants or a particular number of plants on their way home. And, and he chose this time to, you know, note down about some tulips or something, I think it was. And when he looked back along the sidewalk in the direction he was continuing, Bobby was gone. So in just that few minutes, something had happened. And indeed, the walk itself along that road wasn't particularly long between uh, the school and Bobby's house. I think it was, what, three or four blocks, something like that? The school was about four blocks from Bobby's house, and he was almost halfway home uh, when the the friend who was walking behind him saw a car that turned onto the street. And when he diverted his attention to look at the flowers, uh, it took, he thought, maybe a minute or so. And when he looked back up, he saw that Bobby was not there and the car was speeding off down the street. And that was the first connection that anybody would make in the police department as to where Bobby might've gone. Uh, The car was, you know, the obvious point of interest at that point. And one thing I was really struck with, we had, uh, as we were telling this story in the book and doing our research, um, I like to hop on uh, Google maps and do some, street view research to see, you know, how close the houses were and, you know, how far the distances are between this and that. And I was really struck, really struck with how narrow these streets were. So when this kid said he saw the car 
it wasn't like he was seeing it across a wider boulevard that you might expect to have in a in a rich community. Uh, no, this was a narrow narrow street with you know trees here and there, so it, it would have been quite close for this boy to see. And didn't he even have an idea what the make of the yeah, car he, was? Yeah, he thought it was a Winton. Um, he thought it was a gray Winton car. And of course that turned out to be wrong, but that sent the police off for several days worth of chasing down all particular owners of, of that make and model in Chicago, trying to figure out if, if there was some connection. I went on Google Maps uh, to follow Bobby's path. Yeah, and yeah, it, it is not a long walk. No, it's pretty, I mean, it's sort of heartbreaking that he was only about two blocks from home when this happened. Um, you know, he another five minutes, he would have been safe. Yeah. So how long does it take for Bobby's parents to become concerned? Well, they expected Bobby home for dinner, which I think was around 5, 5.30 p.m., and when he didn't show up, there was some concern because he was usually good about being home on time. And they hadn't heard that he was going to be late. Of course, this was well before cell phones and text messages and, and things, but they certainly had telephones. And uh, the thought was maybe the school would have called if he was being held late. So they, you know, they held dinner for a while and then they ate and then they worried and Eventually, Mr. Franks, together with, uh, didn't he contact a friend? Yeah, and then- one of his neighbors was a, a former state senator. And so they sort of went out and thought, well, maybe he got locked in the school. So they walked up the three or four blocks to the Harvard School and investigated to see if, uh, you know, Bobby might be trapped inside, but all the windows and doors were closed. So they contacted the school administrators. They finally sent someone out quite late that night to go into the school and make sure that Bobby wasn't there. But while that was going on, Bobby's mother was at the Frank's house and a call came through uh, informing her that her son had been kidnapped. And so while her husband was away, she was the first one to learn that uh, someone had taken Bobby and would be in touch later with a ransom demand. So how long does it take the Franks to contact police? Well, they didn't want to make contact because they had been warned not to contact the police, but Finally, at about 2.30 that morning, Bobby's father had a friend on the force and he went to go see him. And so the information leaked at that point to the police and and they said that they would make a a very quiet inquiry to see if, if they could figure out what had happened. But that didn't stay private information for long because within about four or five hours, it had leaked to the press that this son of a millionaire was missing in the Kenwood district and no one knew what had happened to him. So it it became a huge story within about 10 hours of of Bobby going missing. So as the Frank family is is trying to figure out what to do, a discovery is made at Wolf Lake, which is 20 or so miles south of Chicago, right? Yeah, it's uh, was. I mean, it's still there, but it's it's quite transformed. It, at the time, it was sort of an isolated marshland 
on the outskirts, sort of the border between uh, Illinois and Indiana. And at about 8.30 that morning, um, a man got off work and he had been working in the night shift. He was walking home through this kind of deserted marshland following a set of railroad tracks. And there was a ditch along the tracks. And at one point, the tracks crossed over this ditch and there was a culvert under them. And as he approached, he saw a pair of feet sticking out of the culvert. And he sort of raced down the embankment and determined that there was a body in there. And so he, he hailed uh, some passing railroad workers who were sort of fortuitously coming down the rail at that time. And they all jumped out and they pulled the body out and it turned out to be the naked body of a young boy. They thought maybe 10 or 12. Something had been done to his face and his side and his genitals. They were all discolored. It later turned out that acid had been poured on them. It doesn't take long, right, for the Franks to learn that this boy was likely Bobby. How, how do they find that out? They were collected that morning at the Franks' house, Mr. and Mrs. Frank, their son and daughter, um, the state senator from next door, um, representatives from the police department. And I think they were, you know, they were talking about how they need to proceed, what needs to happen. They were going over the ransom call. They were waiting, actually, for um, some instructions to arrive at the house regarding dropping the ransom and then retrieving Bobby. And at around this time, of course, Bobby's body was transported to the morgue. And with, you know, how um, word gets around in the police department and someone called up to the house and said, you know, there was a, a body of a young boy discovered early this morning out at Wolf Lake. Uh, could this be your missing Bobby? And um, the Frankses initially didn't think so. Uh, might have been wishful thinking on their part, but after a brief conversation, they sent Flora Franks, Mrs. Franks's brother, out to the uh, the morgue to see if he could identify Bobby with the body. And um, when he got there, he you know saw the same discoloration and. Those who had retrieved the body had also picked up um, bits and pieces that were laying in the grass around the culvert. There was a sock that was Bobby's. Um, there was a pair of glasses. And his uncle, you know, when he saw the glasses, he goes, oh, this couldn't be Bobby. Bobby doesn't wear glasses. And I suppose he was asked, well, they might not be his glasses. Could it be him? And... Eventually, yes, he was able to examine the body a little bit more closely and determined that it was uh, indeed Bobby. So then he, uh, I think he telephoned, didn't he, back to right. his uh, sister's house and let them know. So the Franks is really new quite quickly within about 14, 16 hours of Bobby being missing that um, he had been murdered and was found. Yeah, the irony is while the uncle was identifying the body the ransom letter came to the frank's house with instructions about how to deliver the money which caused a bit of consternation because 
they had a dead body and there was worry, well, is it a misidentification? Is Bobby still alive? Jacob Franks decided to go ahead and get the money from the bank that morning and go ahead and follow the kidnappers' instructions and, and pay off the ransom. But through a series of mix-up, he was obviously nervous and exhausted and tired and worried. He forgot the directions. He was supposed to go on sort of an intricate treasure hunt across Chicago, following one clue to another, to another, to another that would lead him onto a train where he was to toss the money at a certain point uh, in, a, in a box out into the deserted countryside, and he forgot the directions. So that step was never followed through, but he did go as far as getting the money and was prepared to pay it. And we will be right back. We have returned. So among the evidence that begins trickling in is an object that a night watchman finds. He had seen it tossed out of a car, and it turns out to be a weapon. Yes, a night watchman, I suppose that was like a neighborhood security guard, walking up and down the streets, making sure, you know, there's no one doing anything nefarious in a back alley or trying to break into a kitchen doorway. Um, He was just about to get off uh, the clock. Actually, no, let me back up. It was a a little bit before he got off the clock. Uh, He's walking along the street and a car passes him and something is thrown out of the window that makes a metallic clank as it hits the road and that attracts him over, picks it up and he finds out that it's a chisel uh, with the handle wrapped in tape. And he found this suspicious and he kept that chisel with him until he got off the clock. And when he got off the clock, he turned it into the police station, let them know where he found it. And it was also suspicious because there was blood on it. Oh yeah, which there was blood on it. This sort of indicated the worst at that point. Or what he thought was blood. Right, right. So they've got that. And the eyeglasses also become very important. The police want to know if the eyeglasses are unique enough to track to a possible buyer. So it's a really great bit of police work that they do with these glasses when it leads them to a suspect. Yes, it is a, it's a really fine piece of just pure detective work. Um, they had a pair of glasses. They determined that they couldn't possibly have been laying there for long, uh, probably not during any of the recent rain because they were still clean. Um, The lenses were not spotted with moisture, with water droplets at all. They knew from the Franks family that they didn't belong to Bobby. And so what they did with these glasses was they uh, took them to an optometrist and they were able to determine through that study that these glasses were made, they were quite expensive. They had to be made for each individual that they had a particular kind of hinge on the arm of the glasses connecting it to the the lenses and that only three glass three sets of glasses in the Chicago area had been made with these hinges one belonged to a lady who was able to produce them and show them to the police the other one belonged to a man who i think was out of town with them was in them, europe at was the in time. europe with them And the third one belonged to local genius teenager, uh, Nathan Leopold. Yeah. And so, of course, 
they go to find Nathan Leopold, and they want to know where he was that night. And maybe this is a good time to talk more about Nathan Leopold and his background and the alibi that he gives police. Right. Well, Nathan was a bit of a boy genius, but he was also, I think, sort of conflicted with that legacy. He liked seeing himself as superior to everyone else, but that also marked him out very much for ridicule among his classmates. He really never had any deep friendships with anyone until Richard Loeb came along. He was a bit of a loner. He preferred his books. He was quite a renowned scholar on birds. He used to take bird watching tours out to Wolf Lake, and he had published several articles uh, about birds. He had discovered uh, the existence of a rare species in Michigan and published on that uh, at the age of 16. So he had a reputation as sort of, you know, the nerdy boy genius, but he also, just because of his personality, he was quite cold and quite superior. And he alienated most of the people around him. Um, No one really wanted to associate with him because he was so peculiar. And part of, I think, that drawing away from people was also his sexuality. Nathan was gay. And at the time, of course, that wasn't something that he could freely talk about or admit or indulge. And he felt himself more alienated than ever from the larger population and society. And so just became quite introspective and also harbored a lot of very intense kind of dark sexual fantasies involving rape and torture. So there was this other side to him that he kept hidden that no one knew about. And he had been abused by a nanny, right? Right. His nanny had abused both he and his brother. um, And that went on for a few years. And that sort of, I guess, awakened his sexual interest in a way because he began sort of repeating what the nanny had done in terms of, you know, their sexual encounters with other boys. There was a lot of coercion involved and uh, tying people up. And so it got a bit bizarre with him, but he, uh, you know, he, he went down that road and while he, found friends who would accommodate him, he always sort of felt out of sorts because of his sexuality. He could never really accept it. So he tells police, it wasn't me. I was out with my friend, uh, Richard Loeb. What exactly did he say they were doing together? He said they had been out the night before with uh, two girls that they knew that they had gone to dinner and then later on they'd gone to a hotel room where where they attempted to convince the girls to have sex with them. Um, and when that failed, they pretty much just uh, drank a little more, then wrapped it up and went home. And when he brings Richard Loeb into the conversation, that of course means the police need to go find Loeb and talk to him about the afternoon of May 21st as well. Yeah, they were both being questioned separately. Surprisingly, it took 
less than 10 days for the case to break. Um, under police questioning, Nathan first claimed that he didn't own the glasses. Then he finally admitted that he did, but said he must have lost them when he was bird watching. Then gave his alibi that, that he and Richard had been with some girls that they had picked up. When Richard was picked up, he said he couldn't remember what they were doing. And then somehow word got to Richard from Nathan that he should remember the alibi that they had agreed on. So Richard started repeating that, but it didn't take long for the story to unravel. The ransom letter, which had been delivered, had been typed on a very particular kind of typewriter. When the police searched uh, Nathan Leopold's house, there was no such typewriter, but the maid told police, oh yeah, there was a typewriter here about a week ago like that. And so they got a copy of it and got a copy of uh, notes and was able to match the type from the kidnap ransom letter to the, the type of typewriter. And so they, they pressed and pressed and eventually with the police pressing down on them, it was Richard Loeb who actually broke first. Um, Nathan got a little more arrogant and more cocky as the police pressure increased on him. But Loeb just sort of broke down and started crying and finally agreed that he would tell the police everything that happened. And so that's how they solved the case. So in their search, they find some letters. And this surprises the police because in these letters, they learn of this special relationship between the men. Right. And uh, this information contradicts an aspect of their alibi. Right. They were quite explicit, actually. And, um, you know, they were, the police questioned them at, at length about the use of some phrases in the letter. And uh, Richard disclaimed all knowledge, but he admitted that there had been rumors about his relationship with Nathan and he tried to distance himself while Nathan tried to claim that, uh, you know, he went around using certain epithets with everyone, but the police weren't buying it. And clearly the police had enough information in these letters that suggested a sexual relationship between Leopold and Loeb, which, as you say, demolished the, the alibi that they were out picking up girls the night that, that Bobby disappeared. So now seems like a good time to talk more about Richard Loeb. Uh, what kind of guy was he? How did he meet Nathan Leopold? And what was really going on between them? Well, Richard was about a year younger than Nathan. Um, at the time they were actually arrested, they were, what, 17 and 18, I think? Were, I think so, yeah. Um, or 18 and 19. Or 18 and 19. Um, they were already college graduates. Uh, so Richard, like Nathan, was very intelligent, was considered a child genius, um, had been on an accelerated plan through school. Uh, I think he graduated from high school when he was 14 or 15, right. uh, straight into the University of Chicago. Uh, he studied, I think, history right. there. And at one point he... Uh, transferred to the University of Michigan. I think that was part of his plan to distance himself from Nathan a little bit because one of Richard's older brothers had heard some rumors uh, about their relationship, and you know he he didn't think 
different times didn't cross his mind that it was true. He just told his brother it'd probably be better for him if he just kind of had more friends and got out more and did more things without Nathan. So uh, Dick went over to the University of Michigan, continued his studies there, joined a, a fraternity, I think Zeta Beta Tau, and um, got in on you know fraternity life on campus. Uh, shortly thereafter, Nathan also transferred to the University of Michigan. I think there were some uncomfortable uh, meetings between them, and, and Dick made it pretty apparent to Nate that he wanted to pull back. He wanted to do other things, meet other people. Uh, he angered Nathan by uh, making arrangements to spend New Year's Eve with another group of friends rather than Nate and uh so uh, Nathan, partly because of that and partly because his, his um, was he ill or his mother? His was, mother being his, ill, he, he left the University of Michigan and went back to Chicago and completed his, his studies there. And actually, when Loeb, the next year, graduated, he was the youngest graduate ever from the University of Michigan. Um, and I think he still is at this point. He's probably still on their record books, although they probably won't talk about it. And then that same year, Nathan graduated from the University of Chicago. And so that's how in early 1924, they found themselves both back in their home neighborhoods and sort of renewing their acquaintance. They decided that it was fun to go out and participate in little crimes. That was more Richard than it, it was Nathan. Rich yeah, to uh, to back up a bit, they, they obviously first met around the neighborhood, you know, with the boys uh, running around the neighborhood in groups. And they came together and they discovered, I think, a kind of oddness in each of them. Greg has already described Nathan's oddness, but Richard, having been a boy genius, was not only at an accelerated program in, in schools, but he had a governess of his own at home. And she was very strict and very hard on him and kept him busy. He had very little private time, very little playtime. But what he did do was at night uh, with a torch under his covers, he was he read mystery magazines and mystery novels and crime novels and crime magazines. And when he did have some time to himself outside, which was often while other kids were in school, he would practice being what he liked to call the master criminal by practicing uh, stalking people around the neighborhood, following them, making sure he wasn't seen. And once he met Nathan and they sort of compared notes about what they liked to do, Nathan allowed is how he would like to try doing some of that too and, and maybe even break into houses. So that's that's where they started. They started out breaking into cars, breaking into houses. They discovered that um, I think it was the key that operated Dick's mother's car would also operate any other car of the same make. Right. 
So they were often joyriding in cars that they would leave scattered around Chicago. And they set a lot of fires. They would they throw would bricks steal minor things like uh, jars of coins from people's houses, scarves, gloves. You know, small little things that might be missed but weren't of any real value. Their intention was just to be master criminals, cleverer than anyone around them, and able to get away with anything they wanted to do. And, and that, of course, escalated to murder. But that's, that's one of the questions, right? How do a couple of kids who go around setting fires and stealing things jump to premeditated, cold-blooded murder? Right. Well, it, the relationship was... A pretty tangled and fraught one. Richard sort of tolerated Nathan uh, from 1923 to 1924 because he wanted him to sort of be his crime partner and help him out. And in exchange for Nathan doing that, Richard agreed to have sex with Nathan on a certain number of days per month. Uh, they had a sort of agreement spelled out. But I think the thrill of throwing bricks through windows or setting fires sort of faded. And they talked about, after a, a robbery at the University of Michigan in 1923, on the drive back to Chicago, they, they talked about committing a very different crime. Richard threw out, you know, what about a kidnapping? And so that's where the genesis of the Bobby Franks kidnapping began. But we also suspect there were at least three mysterious deaths that took place in the fall of 1923 to early 1924 that involved victims who lived within blocks of Leopold and Loeb, who moved within the same circles as they did. And there are some really chilling parallels between a couple of those and questions about, well, did Leopold and Loeb actually commit any of these other murders, and we think it's probably likely, although it's never going to, to be able to be proven at this point, that they killed at least one person before Bobby Franks and maybe two. And we do know that they did uh, make an attempt on a third person while on vacation at Richard's family's holiday home in the, is it the Upper Peninsula in Michigan? I think that's what it's called. And um, what happened was uh, another college boy who had been hired to work at the Loeb Holiday Home at the same time the boys were there, he walked in on them uh, and caught them in flagrante and told Richard's brother again. And Richard's, Richard's brother told him, no, that couldn't possibly be it, and, you know, fired him and, and whatnot. But before he left the estate, this boy went out in a rowboat with Nathan and Richard. They asked him out, you know, hey, one last thing before you go, let's, let's you know, take the rowboat out in the lake. So he went, um, and, of course, they... Uh, they pushed him out over the edge of the boat, believing that he was unable to swim, and so that he would drown. And then they rode back to shore where they were shortly met by the boy who was actually able to swim after a fashion and got himself to shore. So that's, that's something that we know that they tried 
in what is it a year or two right before i think it was in 1923 in 1923 so we know that they were willing to try it at that point and uh, as greg said we think there was one and possibly two murders that happened one right in their very neighborhood where um, the man's body melvin wolf uh ended up in a closer body of water So, um, obviously those are echoes of Bobby Franks. And again, Melvin Wolf was believed to have been, uh, homosexual himself. So, um, would he have moved in the same circles as one of, or both Nathan, uh, and Richard is a possibility. Um, but his murder has never been solved. Yeah. So the general and long held belief, right? Is that Richard Loeb was the mastermind behind their crimes, uh, the eventual murder of Bobby Franks, a, a kind of wannabe master criminal who roped a lovesick Nathan Leopold into doing his bidding. But, but you don't think that's true? No, not at all. Nathan, from the evidence that, that we studied and we really went back to sort of the original sources, the original psychiatric notes and trial testimony, rather than just repeat what had come before in other books. And it revealed pretty much that Nathan was in charge of the relationship, that Richard, even when it came to kidnapping of Bobby Franks, Richard had tried to back out numerous times, that Nathan had blackmailed him. And the press, when the story broke, they, they portrayed it as these two spoiled, arrogant, rich kids who were obsessed with Nietzsche and thought they were supermen and were getting away with the perfect crime. But Richard had absolutely nothing to do with that aspect of it. Uh, Nathan was the one who sort of believed in a Nietzschean view of the world and, and who read him and tried to expound on that to Richard, but Richard just rejected it. So very early on, I mean, the press obviously covered the case. It exploded in Chicago, but Nathan was presented as Richard's victim, you know, the unwilling participant. And because Richard ended up dying in prison and Nathan survived, Nathan got to re-narrate his own story and changed the boundaries of what happened until that became the accepted story. Um, And it really wasn't like that. That's what we tried to get at, I think, is to show that there's a very different side to what happened and that Richard actually, you know, he's, he's certainly guilty of the kidnapping and the murder, but of the pair, the worst partner was probably Nathan Leopold, and he was the driving force in most of this. Back after these brief messages. And we have returned once more. One of the motives that's usually dismissed in this case is money. They didn't really need the the ransom money because why would two rich kids need money, right? Right. Well, Nathan had a considerable sum, you know, thousands of dollars in the bank that he had inherited from his mother's estate, but he couldn't touch it until he was 21. So he was constantly complaining about money. Um, Richard's father had been vice president of Sears 
and you know provided him with anything and everything he wanted cars and and his education and clothes um, so Richard didn't really want for money but Nathan did and Nathan was constantly complaining about you know he felt that his family didn't give him enough money and he was always trying to figure out how to get more money which may indeed have played into the kidnapping and the ransom demand and they did supplement the money that they had um, through gambling um, with a circle that they knew at the University of Chicago. But Nathan also had plans to go to Europe the summer of 1924. And following his trip to Europe, he would have been heading off to Harvard Law School. So he needed money to begin his lifestyle there as he wanted to continue it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that money would have been a comfortable cushion for him going to Europe first and then uh, getting established at Harvard. Right. So Loeb breaks down first, and then the police go to Leopold and tell him what Loeb said, which forces Leopold to adapt and then confess too. What did each of them say happened? How do their stories align and how do they diverge? Well, Richard basically outlined the plot. They were going to kidnap a boy who came from a wealthy family and collect the ransom. They had agreed that he would probably have to be killed because he could identify them. And so they arranged a a series of uh, false identities through which they rented a car. They didn't want to use any of their own cars for this. They figured they had to have a car to kidnap the boy and get him out of the neighborhood. Um, Nathan sort of heard all of this and he exploded when he found out that Richard had had revealed all of these details. For the most part, their stories actually did align fairly substantially. The only real point of digression between the two was who was driving the car and who was sitting in the backseat and hit Bobby Franks over the head with that chisel and killed him. And Richard said that he had been driving the car and that Nathan was in the back and was the actual murderer. And Nathan claimed that he had been driving and that Richard had yielded the chisel. And so that was something that was never resolved in their lifetimes. Um, From the amount of evidence that we were able to uncover, we think it's pretty clear that according to every bit of evidence and every bit of eyewitness testimony, people who saw the car, saw Richard and Nathan that day, that Richard probably was the driver and that Nathan indeed was the killer. As I've read about the case over the years, watched videos, listened to the story told by different people, the claim is often made that Bobby died almost instantly after his abduction. But you do not believe that's the case, right? Right. Well, we know he didn't die right away. Um, He had a number of wounds, scratches and tears on his shoulders and his back and his leg that had bled. And his heart was obviously still pumping blood uh, when that happened. Um, What was speculated and what we think probably happened is that at some point they drove south toward Wolf Lake. They admitted they pulled over and partially undressed Bobby, um, who would have been unconscious at this point. But the wounds on his body could only have come after his clothing was taken off. And it's entirely possible 
that um, Nathan sexually molested him while he was still alive. He would have been unconscious and probably near the point of death at that point. But um, that's the only way that you can explain the forensic evidence that's left on Bobby's body. Uh, So after they've confessed, they both suddenly hate each other. (laughs) Both accuse each other of, of actually killing Bobby. Neither wants to admit to that. And they're both taken by police out to different sites in and around Chicago connected with their crime. How were they interacting with police and what was their demeanor like during this, this part of the investigation? Um, to each other, they, well, they were carried around in two separate vehicles, but there, there are some photographs of uh, this particular period of time when they were helping the police uh, with their inquiries where you see them just glaring at each other. And it, it, it's evident that they they really don't like each other at this point. Uh, Richard was always a more congenial person. He had a very easy sort of social grace. He chatted with the police officers. He was more at ease than I think Nathan was, although I think Nathan was also maybe at ease, but it's sort of the ease of arrogance where he thought he was better than the detectives. He taunted them a little bit. He was very much, you know, I'm superior to you. I'm better than you. Uh, you're not going to get me on this. Yeah. Whereas during that, that those afternoons when they went out, I mean, Richard sort of collapsed and fainted several times from the pressure over those two days and talked about how sorry he was for what had happened. Whereas Nathan told the police he didn't regret anything, that it had just been an experiment and it was no different than pulling the wings off of a fly or sticking a pin through a butterfly. Richard's remorse comes and goes, right? Sometimes he's very sorry, sometimes he's not. And there was this moment not long after they had committed the murder when Richard sort of gleefully tries to insert himself into the investigation. He really wants to be a part of this. He takes joy out of, of secretly knowing what really happened to Bobby. So he approaches a couple of student journalists with an idea. Right, he does. Uh, it's almost classic. You know, we're told these days that a criminal uh, perpetrator will often try to insert themselves into the investigation. Well, uh, once the press were alerted to the missing millionaire's son, a whole lot of reporters were gathering outside the Frank's house. And at this particular time, Richard was back on the campus of the University of Chicago for one reason or another. And while he was there, he ran into a couple of friends who were working as stringers for one of the Chicago newspapers. And they knew he lived in the neighborhood. And so they wanted to talk to him about it. And, you know, Richard took him over to the Frank's house and showed them the neighborhood. And then he had this great idea, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's go and find, you know, Greg had said that uh, the Franks had that uh, set of ransom instructions that required uh, Mr. Franks to go um, hither and yon following this clue and that clue. Yeah, he was supposed to, to go to, to a drugstore. To a drugstore. And wait for a phone call. And Dick said, hey, let's go find that drugstore. So he and the two journalists 
you know, went into several different drugstores until they finally went into the right one where the operator there said, yes, I remember a phone call coming in, right? You're right. A call had come in, you know, someone had, had been asking, you know, his, his Mr. Franks called and obviously he didn't because he had, had forgotten, but with Richard sort of leading them around, Richard was triumphant and, and claimed that, you know, he had helped solve the case because that's what came from reading detective stories. He was, you know, quite proud to be able to involve himself in the case at that point. And yeah, sort of the, f- the flip side of the master criminal. He's now the master detective. Exactly, yeah. So the duo is fortunate in the sense that one of the most famous attorneys of the day happened to be living in Chicago during the time that this case is unfolding. Can you talk about how Clarence Darrow was enlisted to help defend them? Right. Well, Richard and Nathan's families, of course, heard that they had both offered confessions that were printed in the day's newspapers. And they were desperate to do whatever they could to try to save them from the death penalty. And so they sent some representatives to the apartment of Clarence Darrow, who, of course, was one of the most famous attorneys in America at that point. This was just a year before the Scopes monkey trial. So he hadn't quite won national recognition, but he was well known at that point. And he was more to the point a bitter opponent of the death penalty. And the families knew that he would argue tooth and nail to spare their son's lives. And so they promised him anything, um, any amount of money, if he took on the case and acted as their attorney. And so Darrow saw this as a perfect platform to rail against the death penalty and to explore all kinds of sociological issues that he thought played into criminality. And so he took on the case. And that's one of the reasons that it became so famous was because of his involvement. So this most certainly was a sensational case. Uh, That's an understatement almost. But when Darrow entered the picture, it took it to new levels, right? I mean, we we talk about a lot of sensational cases on the show, but this one took took the cake in, in, in spectacular fashion. Uh, yeah, and and Darrow coming on board just, you know, catapulted it into you know celebrity stratosphere because he was extremely well known uh, at that time and extremely successful. And I suppose, uh, not to draw too great a parallel, but it it, it would be like you know OJ's dream team. It was. Right. Uh, Clarence Darrow and his office and his hand-picked as- associates. And um, they were bringing everything that the Leopold and Loeb family money could bring to the table to fight this. Well, and in addition, one of the things that he did that was really smart in, in terms of the defense was that he made Leopold and Loeb available to journalists and so they gave jailhouse interviews almost every day and talked about things throughout the trial. Um, Darrow thought that this was a way to sort of present them as just innocent young boys and win them sympathy. And it's the first time really that you had the sort of trial where the killers overshadowed the victim. Yeah, there's um, 
There's actually a photograph of the jury box in the courtroom during the Leopold and Loeb trial. And because it was a trial without a jury, the jury box was actually full of uh, cameramen, of journalists, of uh, writers and reporters, um, right there front and center, best seats in the house watching the trial. And Leopold and Loeb decided to mend things between them, right? Ultimately. Uh, yeah, I think they, they really had little choice but to become allies again. Uh, simply because they had to present a united front. They couldn't really go into Darrow's trial or a trial run by Darrow being at odds with each other. And I I think Darrow's uh, plan, the way he planned to conduct the case, actually helped out because he had 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 Leopold and Loeb... um, you know, they, they admitted that they were guilty. And once they admitted guilt, it sort of took off the table the question of who struck the fatal blows. It really didn't matter anymore. They both pleaded guilty. They both were guilty. They both were there. So it sort of took off the table their reason for fighting with each other in the first place. And as time went on, and they were in the local jail pretty close to each other and often returning to their cells after a long day in court, they would share dinner together, dinner which was often brought in from local restaurants and hotels. You know, in in the way that people do, they sort of found a way to be friends again. It was a shock, though, when, when they pled guilty, right? No one was really expecting that. Yeah, Darrow decided that it was best... Uh, for the defense to enter guilty claims because the only other alternative, if they pled not guilty by reason of insanity, then it would go to a jury. And then Daryl would have to convince 12 people that they were not guilty by reason of insanity, whereas he thought he had a better shot with the judge being one person to convince him to spare their lives. And he was really hoping that the judge might be more sympathetic because he was Catholic, right? Right. And the the judge had previously sort of been involved in some youth programs. And so Darrow thought that he could sway him with those kinds of appeals and and play on his sentiment to an extent. In, In an interesting move, Darrow attempted to bring Sigmund Freud into the country to Chicago. Yes, he really wanted him to come over because he was uh, assuming that Freud would examine them and you know find that they were insane, which of course ran counter to his ultimate uh, strategy. Um, but Freud wasn't interested. That didn't stop two rival newspapers in Chicago, though one of them being William Randolph Hearst's. Uh, they were desperate to get Freud over there and comment on the trial. And Hearst even offered to rent an entire ocean liner for just Freud, no other passengers, if Freud would come over and, and he would pay him you know, thousands of dollars a day just to sit in on the trial and then write up his impressions every night for Hearst's newspapers. Um, but Freud wasn't interested in that. He was already somewhat ill. And so he declined the offer. It would have been really interesting had it happened, obviously. Right, right. So how did things in the courtroom go 
who were the witnesses that had the biggest impact on the judge, do you think? Well, since it, it was just a sentencing hearing and not a trial, it wasn't really necessary for the state to put on any witnesses since they had already pled guilty, but uh, the prosecuting attorney wanted all of the evidence laid out. And so they heard from Bobby's father and Bobby's mother and various friends of Leopold and of Loeb and witnesses who had been around that day, who had discovered the body, who had seen the, the car driving down the road, etc. Um, the only real furor that erupted during all of that testimony was during the psychiatric testimony when Darrow called three or four psychiatrists to the stand to try to testify that they weren't insane, but they were just short of being insane. Um, he didn't want to cross that line because if he had any of his experts admit that they were insane in any way, then the judge would have no choice but to bring in a jury. And so that testimony actually had quite an impact on the judge's decision. He took it all into account and, and basically ended up believing Darrow's presentation, even though the state refuted it. Right. So Darrow's closing argument uh, has become almost mythical. Is, is that the right word? Uh, definitely famous. He's well known for this, this, this closing argument. Well, yeah, but, but it really is a myth. Um, it was not the carefully considered, tightly written and masterfully given speech that it's often portrayed as. It was a rambling, disjointed, disconnected, and often just outright insulting, I don't even want to say tirade, because I think he just kind of droned on. But um, he certainly did manage to insult the Franks family by, well, he virtually said that, you know, we couldn't possibly know that Bobby would amount to anything worthwhile right, anyway. He may have done everything worthwhile up to the point where, you know, his clients had killed them. So, you know, what was the point in punishing them? They couldn't know that. And he, he sort of basically blamed everyone else for the crime. He blamed the books that uh, Leopold and Loeb had read. He blamed the libraries that had stocked the books, the publishers of the books. He blamed their parents, their nannies. He blamed the universities they attended. So it was, you know, really, as Penny says, it was a kind of very offensive defense in that there was absolutely no responsibility taken for what his clients had done. And Darrow simply threw shade at everyone else and accused them of being complicit. So Darrow's strategy of, of softening the image of, of Leopold and Loeb, both for the sake of the judge and the public, do you think that worked? Was there more sympathy for them at the end? Or was the, the prevailing feeling one of, of shock, that there was an assumption all along that they would be executed for what they had done? Well, there was just enough sympathy engendered that the judge uh, sentenced them each to life plus 99 years, life for the murder and 99 years for the kidnapping. 
Um, so they weren't, uh, they weren't cleared. They weren't looked upon particularly softly, but the judge did take enough mercy on them to spare them the death penalty. Right. I mean, there was a, a fairly large outcry over the sentencing, and while Darrow certainly swayed public opinion in their favor, there were more than enough people in Chicago who thought that Leopold and Loeb should hang and who protested uh, the eventual decision to put them in prison for the rest of their lives. So Darrow succeeded to some extent in, in softening their image, and suddenly they were transformed from these arrogant Nietzschean supermen, deliberate killers, into these poor, tormented boys who had been abused by their nannies and their families and the educational system and everything else. And so in that respect, he succeeded somewhat, but it, it had very little impact on their fate, ultimately. What role did, did anti-Semitism play in this case? Well, they were all, three of them, Jewish families, the Leopolds, the Loeb's, and the Franks, although obviously the, the Franks had become Christian scientists before this. But the press sort of used the shared Jewishness of Leopold and Loeb to either hint that this was what you could expect from precocious wealthy Jews who believed themselves better than everyone else. And, and there were sort of insinuations, you know, that this is a sort of caste-like thing amongst them and that they were going to pool Jewish money to defeat justice. On the other hand, you had the Jewish press trying to say, well, they're not Jews at all because Jews wouldn't have obviously committed murders. And, you know, if they're Jews, they were Jews by birth. They weren't observant Jews. So it became one of those sticking points in the argument and sort of a cultural touchstone along with you know, their homosexuality, uh, the fact that both families were Jewish, uh, certainly played in the contemporary press and, and sort of helped cement opinions. Uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism at the time. The Ku Klux Klan even showed up and burned crosses in the neighborhood um, during and after the trial to send messages to the Jews. So, you know, it's hard to really underestimate that sentiment in place. Um, there was a lot of prejudice in Chicago in 1924. So where are Leopold and Loeb incarcerated and how do they fare? They were sent to uh, Joliet prison, state prison, and they were immediately separated. They rarely saw each other. Richard adjusted pretty well to prison. He made friends. Um, he got along just fine. He never broke the rules. He was never once written up for any infractions. Nathan, on the other hand, most people avoided him. He was still arrogant, pompous. No one liked him. He had no friends. And he continually broke the rules. Within a year of being incarcerated, at uh, Joliet. They were actually separated into different prisons. Um, Nathan was sent to Stateville, which was a newer facility and vast improvement on Joliet. But it took about four or five years before they were actually reunited in the same prison. They both ended up at Stateville uh, in the early 1930s. 
And then, of course, they came together over a um, a combined uh, venture, which was to go into teaching the inmates in Stateville. They each of them had their own specialities, the their own subjects that they would teach, and eventually they built it up to to quite a big program and expanded it outside the walls of their own prison to other prisons across the state. It, it really became quite uh, an impressive concern. And um, many, many prisoners left the prison with a high school diploma, with a higher qualification sometimes, um, with some ability to seek employment uh, on the outside. So in a way, they really did uh, create something that helped contribute to the rehabilitation of many of their fellow inmates. That that would seem like a a silver lining. Uh, There's no happy ending, of course, in the brutal murder of a boy, but no. but they've made some positive use of their alleged brilliance, right? Right. But but things do not end well. They end violently for one of them. Can, can you talk about that? Right. Well, Richard and Nathan, toward the end um, of 1933, they had sort of been going their separate ways. They were still involved in the school project, but they didn't tend to socialize very much. And while Richard, you know, sort of got along with everybody, his former cellmate sort of took a dislike to him when the prison system was reformed and inmates no longer were able to get funds from the outside. Richard had uh, used his funds at the commissary to buy things for his bunkmates and his friends in jail. When he couldn't do that, uh, one of his former cellmates turned against him. And in 1934, uh, he attacked Richard when Leopold was taking a shower and almost sliced his head off uh, with a straight razor. Um, There were 40 or 50 blows to his body and um, Loeb died within an hour of, of that attack. So he, he left the scene in 1934, whereas you know, Nathan survived in prison for another 15 years. And um, just to jump in, that was 1936. Oh, sorry. Not 34. <laughs> yes, January 36. Um, also, because I know some, some people will know that. Yes, they will. Say. And they'll point it out and they will definitely get on So we, we should be accurate. But I, Yeah, I, I actually, I did an episode about Elvin Carpus once and the author misstated his year of death. And I right. definitely heard about that. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. seasoned pros at getting feedback from our critics. <laughs> yes. Um, and also, it would be important to mention that around this time, about eight, nine, ten years after their incarceration, this is the time when the pair of them, particularly, I think, Nathan Leopold, started to campaign for parole. I, that sort of plays into our, I don't want to say conviction, but it sort of plays into our de- our idea that perhaps uh, Nathan didn't hate the idea that Richard had been killed because he ultimately benefited from from it. it. Now having 
a wide open field. There was no one to contradict him. He could rewrite the history of that night in May 1924 to suit himself, to make himself look as good as he possibly could in his um, constant following applications and attempts to gain parole. So you think there is a chance that Nathan Leopold might have had something to do with Richard Loeb's death? It's certainly possible. I mean, he th- in 1923, he was threatening to kill Richard, so <laughs> it's not a leap. Um, he knew that parole was a possibility, and the only person standing between him and parole was the one person who would contradict his story that he was a complete innocent, and he hadn't been the person who hit Bobby Franks over the head and he hadn't driven the plot. And that was Richard. And, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that it's, it's unprovable. We could never prove it. You know, there's nothing written down. There's no one to say, yeah, he came and asked me to do this. In in fact, the uh, individual who did murder uh, Richard, he got a slap on the wrist because he was able to claim that Richard had made uh, sexual advances upon him. So, yeah, we would never prove it. But we, we also, as we said, we could never prove that they were involved in either the murder of Melvin Wolfe, which some people consider to have been a suicide, or the murder of uh, Freeman Tracy, or um, the mutilation of um, Charles Ream. And one evening in 1923, he was flagged down by a pair of young men who needed a ride somewhere. Um, They convinced him to go to a park. They basically kidnapped him. They held him against his will. Uh, They removed his clothing, they castrated him, and they left him to bleed out in the field in the park. And uh, Coincidentally, almost to the point where Bobby was later found. Right. And, you know, again, not entirely out of character with things that we know that they did do. And then this became obvious when their murder trial was on and... Charles Ream stood up and came to, came to court and told the reporters outside of court, said, hey, these are the guys that abducted me and castrated me, you know, last year. Yeah, and it, I mean, it went to trial in the late 20s, and the jury sort of hung. They couldn't actually figure out who to believe, but the Leopold and Loeb families got together and paid Ream off to not make any further claims. So there must have been some substantial evidence to support their son's involvement in that. And uh, insofar as the case with Melvin Wolf goes, this was a, a one of my little pet pieces of research. Um, I was really taken with the possibility of Melvin Wolf having been a Leopold and Loeb victim, or maybe even just a Leopold victim, because he lived... I think pretty much catty corner to the Leopold house. So they must have known each other. And Melvin Wolf was a successful young man. He worked in his grandfather's business, uh, which was basically a men's furnishings store, you know, shirts and socks and suspenders, shoes, that sort of thing. Um, He did frequent buying trips to Europe. He had recently been to Paris to, 
resupply stock for the store. Um, he was uh, on the beginning of his career, 24 years old. He was heading up. And then he simply went out one night for a walk and he disappeared. And his grandfather, even though the police did want to investigate the possibility of him having been a victim of Leopold and Loeb, his grandfather didn't want the notoriety. So he had leaned towards being satisfied with the case being closed as a, a suicide, which um, I think... I'm not sure if it was, but that's what he wanted. And because they they did get their conviction over the Bobby Franks case, they never really pursued the Wolf case or the uh, Freeman Tracy one. Um, but, you know, as with Leopold and Loeb, there's a lot of shadiness. There's a lot of possibility in the things that went on around them. And, I mean, indeed, in we looked at a list of crimes committed in Chicago in those couple of years before the Bobby Franks murder. And there were holdups in, um, you know, different stores done by pairs of teenagers. And, you know, any one of those could have been Leopold and Loeb. All of them could have been Leopold and Loeb, but we'll never prove it. But there, there, it's, it's a very rich case. There's a lot to mine. But um, at this distance of time, I don't think any of it can really be proven outside of the Bobby Franks murder, and possibly the Charles Ream mutilation. What do you think, Greg? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's you know, it's all speculative, isn't it? But that's what you get when you look at historical true crime, historical mysteries. There's always a degree of speculative analysis. And the best that you can do is – I think what we tried to do, go back to the original sources, piece things together, not accept anything that had come in print before, and you know, to try to ask questions that arose in our minds and questions that other people had raised but had just been ignored or swept aside. So, you know, it's always that conundrum. You can never really know for sure what happened, but I mean, I think we're we're pretty damn close in this book at least to the central issue of you know, who killed Bobby and who was the driving force in that relationship. You, you do state in your book that there is evidence that Richard Loeb was asexual and might have been impotent. And the fact that the guy who killed him said he did it because Richard was coming on to him, it, it's interesting to wonder about, right? Yeah, it's also tantalizing. I mean, as Greg says, it's all speculative, but... Um, yeah. The only the way we've approached all of our books is to take everything back to the grassroots and examine every piece of information, every written testimony, every document uh, that we can get our hands on, and then sort of you you get you know drawn down these little side alleys to do little extra pieces of research, and for me those are the things that make these these projects, these book projects of ours so just endlessly fascinating because, you know, yeah, there's, there's the main story, there's the major story, but then there's, there's everything around it, you know? Right, right. So Nathan Leopold ends up living a, a pretty long life, definitely far outliving his partner in crime anyway. What eventually happens to Nathan Leopold? 
Now, he continually petitioned for parole uh, starting in the, the late 40s and then into the 50s. When he went before the prison parole boards the first few times, he was asked questions like, why did you kidnap and kill Bobby Franks? And his answer was always, well, I don't know how to answer that. It was just a damn foolish stunt that a kid did, you know, and, I, and that didn't satisfy anybody. So, you know, there was no remorse that was apparent. He didn't impress anyone as being suitable for parole. And finally, he got smart. He, he embarked on a PR campaign, giving interviews to Life magazine and to very favorably inclined journalists to build up his image outside of the prison. Then in the 1950s, when Meyer Levin wrote Compulsion, the novel that was based on the Leopold and Loeb case, that raised awareness that Leopold was still in prison. And Levin was so convinced that Leopold should be paroled that he even testified for him uh, before one of the parole board hearings. And eventually, Nathan was granted parole. He got out of prison. Uh, within a day, he was out of the country. He moved to Puerto Rico, where he worked for a religious charity for uh, a few years and then uh, got a job as a teacher and was living in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And that's pretty much where he spent the rest of his life until his death in 1971. He uh, married, although it was pretty much a marriage of convenience. Uh, he never stopped his sexual pursuits of young men. Uh, his wife knew that, and that was obviously a point of contention between them. Um, and some of them were very young men. Very young. And <laughs> yes. um, although his residence was in Puerto Rico, he traveled quite extensively around the world. Um, he also went to some locations which even today sound suspicious for a person of his proclivities, like Thailand. Um, he had some favorite places to go around the world and some favorite boys who lived in these places. Um, he did actually return to Chicago at uh, one point. Yeah, a couple times and, he came back. Um, he, uh, on this occasion, he did a tour of places like Wolf Lake, his old house, Richard's old house, the Frank's house, um, and also out to the cemetery where his mother and eventually father were buried. And um, in walking to their gravesite, he had to pass by the Franks family tomb where Bobby was. So it sort of, in a way, brings that story full circle. Wow, interesting. Well, gosh, this has been so fascinating. People can connect with you through Facebook, right? Uh, yeah, we have a Facebook group. We actually also have a Twitter account. Um, our Facebook is King and Wilson, K-I-N-G-A-N-D-W-I-L-S-O-N, King and Wilson. For Facebook? For Facebook, yeah. Okay. Are you guys working on anything interesting right now? Um, yeah, we are trying to get back to our Russian roots. We have 
What right now we've got, we're working on a couple. We have, we always have at least three or four projects in the works. Um, so if you get burned out on one for a while, you can go to something else. But right now we're focused on next book possibly being uh, one or the other story of uh, a really scandalous woman who lived in the 19th century and had a, a pretty great impact on Imperial Russia and politics. One is an American woman who went to Russia and nearly brought about a war between Russia and the U.S. Um, and the other is a Russian woman who had a very torrid affair with Tsar Alexander II. So we're, we're kind of seeing where those go right now. And we're also exploring or playing around with a fiction uh, project. We'll see how, how far that goes. We've never done fiction before, but um, we'll see how it goes. Very cool. Well, thank you again for taking the time to explain this uh, multifaceted case. Hey, well, it was great talking to you. Thanks yeah, so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Greg King and Penny Wilson. They are the authors of Nothing But the Night, Leopold and Loeb, and The Truth Behind the Murder That Rocked 1920s America. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.